Welcome to the fifth episode of the Climate History Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dagmar de Groot, Assistant Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown University, Director of HistoricalClimatology.com, and Co-Director of the Climate History Network. I'm coming to you in a chaotic and overall dispiriting time for climate research here in the United States. There are six recent developments that I think are especially concerning. The fact that climate change has been dropped from official government websites, the freeze on grants and hiring for the Environmental Protection Agency and other uh, similar organizations here in government, the suggestion to eliminate NASA's Earth Science Division, which now receives about $2 billion uh, of funding per year and is essential to so much climate change research, the muzzling of scientists and the EPA, the Park Service, uh, and other bodies of government, attacks on the press, The press, of course, is responsible for a a lot of climate change communication, especially some of the websites and uh, news organizations that have been targeted by the new administration, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. And, of course, perhaps most importantly, the so-called Muslim ban, which has already affected many uh, academics from affected countries, has prompted calls as well for a boycott of American academic conferences. So suffice it to say, this is not a comprehensive list. And we can be sure that much more is in store for us. So I just want to say that uh, we stand with thousands of scholars from across all disciplines um, who now have united to resist the Trump administration's restrictions on the free flow of information and of people, which of course provides really the bedrock of all scholarly inquiry and the bedrock of democracy. And of course, we can't say it enough. Anthropogenic climate change is real. It threatens our prosperity and perhaps even the survival of our way of life. And it requires urgent action by governments the world over. I discussed some of these issues with our guest in this episode, uh, Professor Sam White of Ohio State University, our first ever repeat guest at the Climate History Podcast. My interview with Professor White was recorded back in December when the pain of the election uh, and the shock of its outcome was still very fresh, and you'll probably be able to hear that as you listen to this episode. Professor White is probably one of the most innovative and respected environmental historians of a period of time called the Little Ice Age, a period of climatic cooling that has many different definitions, but according to the one that I favor, it lasted from around the 13th century until midway through the 19th. Professor White's first book, The Climate of Rebellion and the Early Modern Ottoman Empire, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2011. In that book, Professor White uses interdisciplinary methods and sources to explore how climatic cooling and drying especially shaped the history of the Ottoman Empire and really led to a series of crises uh, that culminated in a major rebellion and millions of deaths. The climate of rebellion in the early modern Ottoman Empire won the Middle East Studies Association Albert Harani Award the Turkish Studies Association Fuat Kuprulu Award, and the British-Kuwaiti Friendship Society Prize for the best book in Middle East and Turkish studies. Professor White has also written a whole range of articles, and, and perhaps most importantly, he co-founded and now co-directs the Climate History Network with me. His second book is coming out soon. It's called A Cold Welcome, The Little Ice Age and America's colonial beginnings, and he was at Georgetown to talk about this book and uh, the process of writing it. 
So, uh, Professor White, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. And thank you for inviting me. Well, we're meeting the month after one of the most consequential elections, uh, perhaps in American history. A consequential election for um, the global effort, perhaps, to, to confront climate change and perhaps even for climate research. Um, I have to ask you, <laughs> does the history of, of climate change, does really the history of science tell us anything about the present, anything about the present moment or, or even the future? It's difficult to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see that climate change research is going to stop, uh, but this could be a severe blow if it becomes heavily politicized in the United States to the point that any basic research is seen as having a political agenda. That said, though, uh, I suspect the research will continue uh, in other countries. Uh, We've seen other political changes throughout the world. Uh, We've seen attacks on the science of climate change in Australia or Canada, for that matter, or under the Bush administration. Uh, This could be worse, uh, given both the strong record of climate denial in the incoming uh, administration uh, as well as the more pervasive climate denial we've already seen in, say, state governments in the United States uh, and in the Republican Party. Uh, however, I suspect, and I'll openly say I hope, uh, this is only temporary, uh, and that the research will go on, and if necessary, uh, with U.S. climate scientists, and for that matter, climate historians working in other countries if necessary. Mm-hmm. Do you use uh, any of NASA's climate resources for your own work or for your teaching? Uh, Sometimes in teaching. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, of course, I uh, take advantage of uh, some of the visualizations uh, of data, uh, both to present to students and and occasionally to help uh, in my own research just to see and understand uh, changes over time. For the most part, though, my work is based on uh, historical climatology reconstructions and uh, ongoing uh, examination of new paleoclimate proxies and their results. Do you think that, uh, that those sources might be affected by government policy at all going, going forwards, or, or at least our access to those sources? I hope not. I hope the data could certainly be transferred somewhere else where it's available. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine, although then again many things have been hard to imagine, uh, <laughs> that uh, the attack on climate science would go to the point of actually taking away resources already present or tearing down uh, websites, visualizations, uh, and so forth that are already there. Uh, there, so, there was a trend towards that in Canada, actually. Under the Harper regime, there was a trend towards actually abolishing, actually uh, destroying documentary evidence that helped us to reconstruct past climate change. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Yeah, and the irony, too, of course, is that from my perspective, uh, working on climate history, working on natural climate variations and extreme events. Uh, I, I, my work might personally benefit if there was no <laughs> anthropogenic global warming. Uh, it would certainly uh, um, emphasize the significance of natural variation. Uh, but, you know, sadly, that's, that's just uh, not the case. Uh, the anthropogenic warming we're experiencing is, is going to be much greater, if it not already is much greater than the natural variations that we've seen for the past several thousand years. We, we can... Think about that too, though, a little bit about uh, the relationship between, I suppose, extreme weather and social changes. Because we're now in a record-breaking year, obviously, right? And this is going to shatter. 2016 is going to shatter the instrumental record for global temperatures. Um, 
coming after another record-breaking year, coming after yet another record-breaking year, so three years of record-breaking heat, and yet we now in the United States have elected a climate change denier. And what that might, what might that suggest about the relationship between these sort of punctuation events in climate history and uh, social political change? Well, I don't think the election was decided on climate change one way or the other. I think the most salient fact about climate in the recent election was how little it was discussed exactly, at all. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I, there is good research, and I would point particularly to the Yale Project on uh, Climate Change Communication, mm. uh, that most Americans do support basic action to combat climate change. However, there is still the widespread perception that climate change is a distant problem. Uh, it's one for future generations or one that has environmental impacts, but very little recognition that it's having serious human impacts now, uh, including impacts in the United States. I think that realization will come about, uh, possibly very soon, uh, but uh, it, it, but maybe not actually in time uh, yeah. for the United States to, to uh, take decisive action and help meet its climate change targets. Do you think that we have a responsibility to try and reach the general public, and do you think we haven't reached them enough uh, with this message that climate change can have major social consequences? Well, I think we need to be careful. To some extent, we have reached the public, um, but I worry sometimes it's the wrong message. Mm. Uh, the message being that climate change causes catastrophes, uh, that there's going to be a dark, dystopian future. Mm. Uh, the trouble with that message is it's one that people don't want to believe, and so therefore they don't believe it. Mm -hmm. uh, and another problem is that it suggests something that's going to happen in the distant or uncertain future, uh, rather than uh, something that's already happening now. I think we need to communicate is that climate change is real, uh, both natural climate variability and now anthropogenic warming. Uh, that it does have serious consequences, uh, that there are ways of trying to at least alleviate those consequences or managing those consequences, uh, and that's something we need to take into account uh, both as we see human history and as we imagine our uh, immediate future. <clears throat> so I think we need to get the impression that it's a serious but manageable practical problem, not a totally different sort of problem uh, that is either going to uh, somehow magically go away in some utopian future or suddenly come to kill us all in some dystopian future. <laughs> it's really about making it real, uh, concrete, and understandable, uh, as opposed to just uh, scary. Yeah, I could not agree more. Um, <clears throat> let's move on to cheerier yeah. topics. <laughs> this is a very depressing opening. Um, you are editing the Palgrave Handbook of Climate History, which I think will really revolutionize the teaching of climate history, and really even of environmental history. Can you talk a little bit about the volume and, and how close you are to getting it published and, uh, and what's in it? So this idea started uh, several years back, um, mostly under the initiative of uh, Franz Malshagen, who's now at the uh, Institute for Advanced Studies at Potsdam University. And it uh, has taken some time to get together it's, as the volume has, the, the concept has, has continued to grow. Uh, but we've now managed to bring together uh, over 40 authors uh, from many fields, uh, everywhere from uh, historical climatology, environmental history, uh, modeling, uh, and a little bit from uh, paleoclimatology as well. And we've uh, together written over uh, 40 chapters, uh, largely broken up into the areas of 
methods in historical climate reconstruction. Uh, the major results from historical climatology uh, research in different periods and eras, uh, and, and places, I mean, uh, as well as uh, overviews of major types of impacts and adaptation uh, related to, say, food production, migration, and conflict, uh, some significant case studies in decades of uh, climate extremes and human impacts, and the history of climate science. Mm. So it's been quite a project, and I think it's been uh, a difficult but necessary one because it's the field has matured to the point where we need to take stock uh, of where we are, what's the state of the art, uh, and how can we reach both students uh, and the general public. For me in particular, the teaching aspect was important. I, I've taught uh, courses on climate change in several different guises, but never actually a large survey course on climate and history, in part because I simply didn't have the uh, resources for students, either in terms mm -hmm. of reference or in regular uh, readings that I could use to help support that teaching. Uh, so I've always focused on smaller, more specialty courses, mostly for advanced students. And my hope is that with this volume, I can now reach a larger uh, body of students that other professors can do the same. Yeah, actually, so I taught, uh, when, when I started at Georgetown, I, I, I taught a really big course on climate history over about 7 million years to, um, to undergraduates. And, and it, you know, we had quite a few people in the course. And it was hard. We didn't have that volume that could anchor the whole course. We actually used... Uh, John Brooks uh, climate change and the course of global history which I think worked well but we lacked the kind of local stories and case studies that you really need to, to I guess flesh it up for, for students a little bit and, and make it come alive to them a little bit and so hopefully this volume will, will do that. Yes, yes, I find students are, tend to be either pulled towards the data. Uh, you have some students who are more quantitatively focused, uh, more analytical, uh, more drawn to big abstract concepts, and they tend to gravitate towards uh, big picture climate reconstruction uh, climatic trends. Mm. Uh, but they often want to correlate them in ways that are too simplistic uh, mm -hmm. to the course of human history. Mm -hmm. And then you have other students who uh, are more drawn to history and the humanities uh, and are very interested and drawn to the particular stories of climate change impacts, experiences, and adaptation uh, but have trouble grasping the bigger picture in terms of the data, or may just have a certain phobia when it comes to uh, numbers and, and science. Uh, so I hope that this volume does a good job of addressing both concerns, of, of really drawing those different perspectives together. Uh, and we've taken a great deal of effort uh, to write it in a language that uh, students and non-specialists can understand. And I'd like to give a, a thanks to all of the authors, uh, who many of them worked with me through multiple drafts and extensive revisions to really help make that uh, consistent and readable across the volume. We have about 8% of your authors here at Georgetown with John McNeil and <laughs> Tim Newfield and myself. Um, and I know uh, from working with you that your editing is fantastic, so I'd like to thank you for your really careful and good editing job. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Sam. Um, so, moving on from the handbook, uh, you've got a really interesting book, uh, another book actually that you're that you're working on now, um, a cold welcome. So, can you describe the book for us and, and how you came up with the with the big idea? Sure. So I think I best to, it's best to start with how I got into this project. Uh, in 2011, I finished my previous book. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, 
the climate of rebellion, uh, uh, which was about cold, uh, drought, and uh, crisis in the Ottoman Empire in the late 16th and 17th centuries. And in that book, I had adopted, you might call it an analysis approach. Uh, I was focused on uh, large structures and the uh, pressures that led to certain uh, conjunctures uh, in the development of the Ottoman Empire. And that reflected in part my intellectual background and training as a graduate student, but also the nature of the evidence I was dealing with, which was largely a series of imperial records uh, from the Ottoman archives. Uh, so I was working primarily in Istanbul with records such as imperial orders or uh, tax returns or cadastral surveys. So those kinds of records gave me this uh, really interesting holistic picture of how the empire was suffering from pressures on its ability to manage resources to provision its cities and militaries, uh, and how those pressures uh, undermined provisioning systems and led to crisis and transformation in imperial rule. When I finished that, though, what I wanted to accomplish with my next project was to understand climate impacts and adaptations on a smaller and more intimate scale. Uh, I wanted to be able to look underneath this, this big uh, imperial overview and get at the experience of ordinary people. But I wanted to do that in a context that it would really matter. So I knew, first of all, that I needed to probably zoom in on a uh, more detailed time period, uh, uh, a more specific time period, I mean, uh, where I could look at extreme events, uh, but also to smaller case studies uh, that would allow me to get at the experience of individuals and small groups. My first reaction was to, to uh, try to just find one major uh, climatic event, or maybe even one year. Uh, and so I started looking at the first decade of the 1600s, uh, particularly in the wake of the eruption of uh, Juan de Pertina uh, in Peru, uh, as my potential case study to uh, understand climate impacts. But it quickly became apparent that the, the real story uh, that I was going to find there uh, was in uh, early attempts to colonize, European attempts to colonize North America. Uh, the reason being that these were uh, small groups of people who were exceptionally vulnerable to climate variability and extreme weather. Uh, and also these were cases where we had fairly detailed records, uh, which had been fairly well uh, researched. So I, I would not have to uh, go back and do all of the work from the ground up. Mm. Eventually, uh, as I started studying those particular expeditions, particularly those that led up to the founding of Jamestown, Quebec, and Santa Fe, all between the years 1607 and 1608, uh, I realized that I was going to have to extend that and see the whole picture of early colonial uh, exploration and settlement attempts in, in North America. So that uh, ended up taking me to a slightly different uh, kind of project, uh, where I go back all the way to uh, the very first Spanish expeditions uh, into what would now be the United States, uh, all the way through about 1610. Uh, and <clears throat> What I've ultimately come up with is a book that helps retell that whole chapter of early colonial history, both, both American and Canadian, uh, from the perspective of, uh, of grappling with climate, mm -hmm. um, to, to retell that story not, not in many of the conventional ways it has been, which are, which are perfectly valid, uh, you know, as, as a clash between settlers and, and Native Americans, as an experience of... Uh, um, uh, as you know, I'm trying to think of it as a clash between different rival empires or as uh, 
you know, a, a experience of the Columbian Exchange and the transfer of, of microbes and uh, plants and animals, um, but rather think of it as uh, how did people from one continent, from, from Europe, a continent that happens to have a fairly mild maritime climate, uh, grapple with a new continent that has a harsher continental climate uh, and one that is, you know, more variable year to year and season to season and was undergoing uh, climatic extremes uh, due, to, due to major volcanic eruptions uh, and to the general cooling of the Little Ice Age. Uh, so that, that's the long and short of uh, the book. But, um, and within that, there are really several major themes, uh, one being the attempt to try to understand what climate is all about, uh, you know, try to move beyond the idea that climates are simply uh, latitudes, as Europeans had often assumed going all the way back to, to classical writings, uh, and said to understand them in terms of patterns of weather and season related to uh, atmospheric circulation mm. and, and in local geography. So there's a history of science aspect to it. Uh, another major theme is in testing the limits of paleoclimate and historical climate reconstruction. Uh, how much can we know about climate uh, change and variability in North America at this time, given the existing physical records uh, from tree wings, from ice cores, from lake sediments, uh, as well as the uh, scattered written descriptions we have, uh, both you know, phenological descriptions of the freezing of particular lakes and rivers, uh, the timing of uh, flowerings and, and uh, when trees grew and lost their leaves and so forth, uh, as well as more sort of holistic narrative descriptions of experiences. Uh, another theme was in trying to understand the experience of Native Americans uh, in this changing climate, uh, based from these uh, scattered European records as well as the archaeological record, and to understand how that experience may have influenced the way in which they uh, received and reacted to the first European settlers. Uh, and then finally, and I think this is uh, probably for me the most uh, entertaining part of the book, is just, just to tell the stories of each mm -hmm. and every one of these uh, settlements uh, it, and, and to try to you know, work in the factors of weather and climate, uh, which had often been neglected before. Uh, and that was particularly fun to me too because there really has been a lot of great research done. And at each and every stage of this, I was aware of uh, the you know wonderful work that past historians have done, whether these are uh, big names at you know major universities today, or in some cases the works of uh, you know amateur historians fifty years ago who just mm -hmm. decided to devote their life's work to uh, you know uncovering each and every document of some particular expedition, uh, and to go back to those with just one new key uh, that I had that they didn't, mm -hmm. uh, and namely understanding the uh, the picture of climate and weather at the time. Mm. Fascinating. Fascinating. So, uh, and drawing from your uh, recent article in, in the journal ISIS as well, um, it, it sounds like you're saying that when Europeans uh, discovered the Americas for their own empires and for themselves, um, they were discovering a new, a, a, a new idea about climate as well, I guess, something that's more similar to our ideas about climate now, right? Yes, yes. Uh, and you can see that both in a shift in uh, language as well as a shift in concepts. Mm. So if you're to go back to writings of, uh, you know, the, the 16th century, for the most part, climate is simply used to mean latitude. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, it's almost exclusively used that way. The idea of talking about climate as patterns of weather uh, or averages of weather uh, almost didn't exist. Occasionally, words would be used 
that had roughly a similar meaning. Uh, for instance, you know, talk to the there be English references to the airs or the seasons of a place, mm. but it didn't really quite get at our modern sense of climate. By the mid seventeenth century, uh, in particular, you do start to see writers who use the, the expression climate, uh, not only in English but in other European languages, to start to mean something like climate in its modern sense, mm. an, an average of weather over time. Uh, something that you know distinguishes the the patterns of weather and seasons in a particular place, uh, and that uh, change also reflects a sort of conceptual shift uh, that emerged with experience of the new world. That went all the way back to Columbus's arrival in the tropics, mm. which uh, you know the American tropics were not the dry, burning, torrid zone uh, of the classical imagination. Uh, a, a notion of climates based basically on the European experience of the Mediterranean of Northern Europe and of the Sahara, um, you know, defining uh, you know, these these temperate, torrid, and, and, and frozen zones. Uh, <clears throat> but you know, when you, they cross the ocean and arrive at the Americas, they encounter something very different. So that that first experience with the tropics and the puzzle of trying to understand the, the habitable tropics uh, leads to a broader intellectual enterprise in trying to understand well what determines uh, climates in different places besides just their latitude alone. Uh, most of the efforts go very far astray. Uh, and you have to remember that even as late as the early 17th century, most uh, writers are still working within a geocentric cosmology. Mm. So they're trying to understand uh, weather patterns and we might anachronistically call atmospheric circulation in terms of a, a stationary Earth with the sun and heavens orbiting around it. Uh, what's remarkable is how ingenious some of those efforts were. Uh, if you look at, for instance, the efforts of uh, uh, José de Acosta, uh, the uh, Spanish uh, polymath, of the uh, late 16th century. I mean, he, he came up with some quite ingenious ideas that could, in a strange way, account for a lot of the large patterns of atmospheric circulation that do make this difference. Mm. Uh, you know, the uh, he came up with sort of rough equivalents of uh, Hadley cells, trade winds, uh, and, and explanations for prevailing westerlies and, and, and continental climates in America. Uh, but more broadly, that understanding emerges starting in the uh, mid-17th century. Uh, and, and becomes more complete, really, by the 18th century. But the impetus largely came from this uh, contact with uh, American climates uh, and certain puzzles of the American climates, including the habitable tropics, the uh, extreme seasons of the uh, eastern, uh, of eastern North America, uh, mm-hmm. as well as a lot of sort of ingenious uh, sophistry trying to justify the Northwest Passage, which is a whole uh, different story. That sounds almost like this is kind of part of uh, this trend in the history of science, right? To make the scientific revolution, if one existed, less of a European thing and, and more of a, a, a product of Europeans in, in engaging with the wider world, right? Is, would, would you say that as well? Yes, certainly. Mm. I, I think this, this does largely support the view that overseas exploration was a key factor in the scientific revolution. Mm. Uh, and and I, I think actually this, this kind of research, trying to focus on a particular science that hadn't been much studied before, uh, in this case, I guess we might anachronistically call climatology, uh, it really does help substantiate uh, the scientific revolution. I mean, you, mm. you really do see a substantial difference in the way people are discussing uh, a problem uh, and, and trying to draw on facts and proof right. uh, of hypotheses um, you know, by the 17th century or 18th century uh, versus the way they had done so in previous centuries. I think it also helps uh, specify the ways in which uh, 
the experience of the wider world did change European points of view. That, that idea, that experience uh, of the wider world, that overseas exploration sort of opened Europeans' eyes to, to new ways of thinking, um, has certainly been there for a while, but sometimes mm. it's hard to find the, the specifics. And I think this is one example of how experience of the Americas in particular uh, led Europeans to new ideas, uh, new ways of thinking that just, just wouldn't have been there had their experience been limited to Europe alone. Fascinating. Um, now, moving from your own work, um, what, what do you think is some of the most exciting research in, in climate history right now, or historical climatology? So, uh, perhaps this is in reaction, again, to having written a, a, a big book before about a, a big uh, climate-related disaster, uh, mm-hmm. namely my, my work on the Ottoman Empire. I now find myself more and more interested in uh, the highly detailed, specific, uh, well-researched work on particular areas, Uh, Mm. uh, the degree to which we can now use uh, a range of both written and proxy evidence to understand in some intimate detail uh, what kinds of experiences people were going through in past centuries and what kind of influence they had. Uh, In this regard, I think I'd point in particular to the work of uh, Chantal Kamenisch and Mm. uh, uh, her colleagues uh, looking at the uh, 1430s and their experience in Europe, oh, yeah. as well as uh, Dr. Kamenisch's work in general uh, reconstructing climate in the late medieval low countries, which is, I think represents a new standard in very detailed uh, and very thorough documentary-based climate reconstruction mm. uh, and, and its role in economic history. Mm. Fascinating. Um, now, I guess shifting... Um, to our work at the Climate History yes. Network. So we're, we're, we're doing this mapping project, digital mapping project. It's one of the, the really pillars of, I guess, our expansion online in the next few years. Can you describe what, we're, what, what, what we have in mind? Um, so <laughs> our, our current plan, uh, if, we, if we, can, we can pull it off, and I think we'll pull it off, uh, is to create a larger uh, digital atlas and source book for climate history. Uh, This is an idea that came out of really more modest ambitions, again, related to to teaching climate change courses. Uh, So the last time I taught a course on the Little Ice Age, uh, which was an advanced seminar I taught for students in the history department and students in our our program in medieval and Renaissance studies at OSU, I I was really suffering from the lack of a good source book. Uh, You know, I had to draw primary sources from uh, a variety of different places and, and help provide the background and the uh, both climatological and historical myself. And so I felt the need for tying together uh, a number of key sources that I could use to present to students uh, along with uh, appropriate both climatic and historical context. Um, in conversation, actually originally I think it was with Mark Carey at uh, uh, University of Oregon, mm-hmm. um, the idea came up that actually this would be much better as a digital project mm-hmm. uh, than as a, as a written source book. Uh, that if such a project were done digitally, we could sort examples by type uh, of impact, by uh, major themes, uh, by both location and chronology. Uh, So we'd have a way of of helping students, and for that matter, anyone interested in exploring climate history, uh, look through these these examples uh, in many different ways and tie together different themes that otherwise Mm. wouldn't be apparent if they were just uh, organized sequentially in a source book. So... Uh, my thought uh, at first was to do something fairly quick and simple, uh, but 
over time decided that if this is something we're going to do, we should we should do it right uh, and do it on a fairly significant scale, mm-hmm. uh, and one that we could we could also scale up or down depending on the uh, degree of support and interest. Yeah. Uh, so what we're hoping for now is, is to get uh, a bit more time, uh, funding, and support uh, for a, a, a really professional website uh, that would help us to continually add new sources uh, on climate history, whether these are documents, whether these are images, uh, whether these are, uh, you know, pictures of of physical markers and events, uh, that we can, you know, feed into a a digital historical atlas uh, Mm. that both students and the public could explore. And one thing I I also have in mind with that is that it could be a ready source of examples, both to be used for comparison and contrast as new climate extremes and disasters occur that we can anticipate in the coming decades. Uh, so if there is, for instance, an extreme heat wave or drought, we could see whether we have something existing in our atlas uh, that shows a, a parallel event or shows the contrast between uh, contemporary events and uh, patterns and extremes seen in, in previous centuries. Mm-hmm. And that would be a good way of trying to uh, you know, create, I guess for one better word, memes and reach a, a wider public quickly and, and draw attention to climate history. Yeah. Um, here at Georgetown, we were thinking about um, creating something called Earth Temperature. I, I think we chatted about that a little bit as well. This was a way of visualizing the extent of present-day climate change with reference to the past. So we'd have a number that would show uh, the total global temperature, and that number would be color-coded based on how much warmer or cooler it was, usually warmer, than the historical average. Um, and, and then you could actually scroll backwards and forwards in time and see how things were changing. And I started thinking, okay, well, NASA does a lot of this stuff, but we'll also add... Uh, social consequences of climate change to our map. And then I was thinking, well, maybe we'll add um, sources as well. And so we got a chunk of change for that here at Georgetown uh, with the Georgetown Environment Initiative um, uh, and additional grants that we have here at Georgetown. So we got a little bit of money for that. And just as we got that money, actually, you approached me with your idea, which was, frankly, uh, a bit more refined than the one that I was working with. I thought, okay, so we'll put a bunch of that money towards this project. So we've already got some money that can fund the beginning of this project, and now we're just looking for a uh, somewhat bigger grant to carry us home. And I think uh, we've got a good chance of getting there. Yes, yes. And, and a large part of it is is about having the the time, yeah. I guess, to, to do it right. So in yeah. uh, buying time is always a, an expensive proposition. So uh, I think we will, we'll push forward with this regardless, but... Uh, what can we say? M- money does help. Huh? <laughs> sure does. <laughs> so uh, sure does. I, I will hope that the, the uh, National Endowment for the Humanities and others are listening to us right now. Be generous, yes. Um, they might be one of our four or five listeners, so yes. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, well, uh, Professor White, thank you so much. You're our second, uh, actually the first podcast guest that we have to come on the second time. So it's, it's, it's quite a thing. So thank you so much. <laughs>